So now we have the opportunity to practice samadhi together, to work to bring the mind to stillness and engage in the formal sitting. Our goal in the sitting practice is initially to bring the mind to samadhi, a state of lucid calm or clarity of vision and stillness of heart. To achieve this state of lucid calm, we have to put forth effort. The nature of the mind is to run after all the mental impressions that arise in it to chase after this and that. And so to bring it to stillness requires us to put forth effort and restrain it. When our eyes perceive a sight, our ears a sound, nose, smell, tongue taste, our bodies impact, and our mind thought, or what's called dhamma-ramana, mental impressions in the mind, then we have to restrain the chitta or mind from following and running after them haphazardly and maintain its center. If we fail to restrain it, it will inevitably chase and become lost these in all of these impressions. All of the mental impressions and sensory impressions, the aramana, are the equivalent of food or sustenance for the chitta in the mind. It's hungry and so chases constantly and endlessly after these impressions. It's like a buffalo that sees a rice paddy of ripe uh, rice in front of it and will attempt, if possible, to wade into the rice paddy and consume the crop. If there's no one to look after the buffalo, no herder, then the water buffalo will destroy the crop before the farmers have had a chance to harvest it. And the mind is the same. If we fail to look after the mind, if we fail to be dutiful in our shepherding of it, then it will run after all of these impressions in search of sustenance and it will destroy what's around it. It can also be compared to a person without a home and dependent on others. In such a case, uh, this person is not independent. And the mind is the same if we're constantly dependent on these externals for our well-being, then in a certain sense, we can never be independent or secure. So by cultivating this internal serenity of mind, 
we find and create our own home in our hearts. If we have wisdom, then we can see, once the mind has become still, the arising, remaining, and passing away of all these various impressions that impact the mind. We understand them as inconstant and changeable. This was perhaps the Buddha's essential insight. He perceived dependent origination, uh, paticca samuppada, as it's known, the 12 links whereby phenomena based in avijja or ignorance usher into suffering. This chain begins with avijja or ignorance, and avijja serves as the condition and cause for sankara or conditioned formations. Sankara serves as the condition for vijnana or consciousness, sensory consciousness. Vijnana serves as the condition for nama rupa, name and form, mentality and materiality. Nama rupa conditions ayatana, the six sense bases. Ayatana condition pasa or contact. Contact conditions vedana or feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Vedana conditions tanha, craving, namely the three types of craving, kama tanha, vibhava tanha, and bhava tanha. That's sensory craving or craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, and craving not to become. Put simply, uh, you can, we can think of it as desiring the various pleasant sensory impressions and also the desiring to be and not be. This tanha or craving gives rise to upadana or clinging. And this clinging can be clearly designated as a powerful and essential link in the chain leading to suffering. We attach. And such upadana gives rise to jati, birth, which ushers into death, suffering, despair, and, and dukkha. The Buddha saw this 12-link process and he understood, he understood that all the impressions that come into the mind proceed from this process. And in that moment of knowing and understanding how this system works, he was able to dispel the defilements of his heart, to destroy the kilesa, something we call samucheta bahana, the cutting off and abandoning of this suffering and the causes for it. The Buddha, on the 
eve of his enlightenment, was able to see through, understand, and disentangle or dispel this process of dependent origination that ushers into suffering, and he became a self-enlightened Buddha. After his enlightenment, the Buddha had goodwill for all beings. His heart was free. And he resided there under or near the place of his enlightenment for 49 days, enjoying the bliss of liberation, after which he traveled to where he taught his five former companions, the five ascetics, namely expounding to them the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, which elucidates the four noble truths, suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering, namely the Eightfold. These four truths gave rise in one of the number of the five ascetics named Anya Kondanya, insight, liberating insight, that caused him also to achieve a stage or a degree of enlightenment. Anya Kondanya saw that whatever arises also will cease. And this knowledge, because it entered so deeply into his heart, was enough for him to see the Dhamma and achieve stream entry. Before Anya Kondanya had not possessed this penetrating wisdom, but rather simply samadhi or stillness of mind based on his practice of samatha or tranquility meditation. But this preliminary practice of samatha that he had cultivated had made his chitta or mind so refined that when he heard the Dhamma being expounded by the Buddha, he saw clearly and was able to penetrate with great clarity of mind and wisdom the Four Noble Truths. We also, on one level, can see this same insight or see these truths at work as well, even at a lesser level. This is the practice. When tanha or craving arises in our minds, we don't attach, we don't become drunk on it or buy into it. We know it and see it come and go. And similarly with upadana, clinging, we simply know it. And instead of ushering into birth and the latter links of the chain of dependent origination, it can fade right then and there. We understand liking and disliking as they arise and let them go. As lay people, to achieve our livelihood, we may study various subjects in school. We might study different areas of knowledge in college or university 
And in such study, thinking and reading, research is essential. But the Buddha's subject, the Buddha's study, which we can also engage in, is simply that of the Eightfold Noble Path of cultivating understanding and strengthening the qualities of right view, right intention, and so on through right mindfulness. These uh, and the other links or aspects of the Eightfold Path, particularly this aspect of right view is how we learn to look and see the world in line with the Buddha's teaching. This is the Buddha's subject of study, and it ushers into wisdom. The Buddha taught repeatedly that this eightfold path founded on right view is the only and the direct path to wisdom, to the end of suffering, to liberation, Nibbana. However, he also spoke of how wherever this path was found was essentially one path towards Nibbana, that if the Eightfold Path was embodied in a practice, then that practice could be liberating. There was an occasion when several Mahayana monks came and visited Longpur Cha, dressed in their traditional gray monastic garb. Longpur Cha recognized them as fellow monastics, albeit from the Mahayana branch of Buddhism. And he told the laity, the lay people who were there at the time, that these are monks, that they should respect them. And the lay people immediately understood and paid respects, bowing to the guests. They saw that this various and uh, different clothing that the monks came in was simply conventional truth, that it was a matter of convention, but that essentially these monks were also monastics of the Buddha and should be respected as such. And in bowing, they showed that the disciples of Longpur Cha understood respect for the Dhamma. The Mahayana monks had come seeking an answer to their question, which apparently they had asked many uh, on the Four Noble Truths. They asked Longpur Cha to tell them why they, what the practice was, why we practiced, and when we know we've practiced enough. Longpur Cha expounded or answered in kind, saying, why do we eat? What is the purpose of our eating? How do we know we're full? And how do we eat? This answer 
was one imbued with great wisdom and drew an analogy to the Four Noble Truths. It was the answer that they had been looking for, or one that indicated the wisdom and insight that they'd been seeking. They were content and gained great faith in Longpur Cha, Ajahn Cha from this occasion. So these are high wisdom teachings, but at the heart of our practice, we must focus on the basics of meditating and putting forth effort and in cultivating constantly the perception of the three characteristics in our experience, seeing that all phenomena are anicca, anatta, and dukkha, inconstant, not self, and suffering. To see clearly and with penetrating wisdom this truth requires us to cultivate a degree of samadhi or lucid calm in the mind. And this requires constant effort in the practice of both mindfulness and formal meditation. Yet this insight into the inconstant, not self and suffering nature of external phenomena is extremely powerful and served as the basis for one of the Buddha's cardinal suttas, the Anattalakana Sutta, the second discourse that he gave to the five ascetics. He asked them, is what is changeable, worthy, uh, sukha or dukkha? Is what is inconstant, pleasure or pain? To which the five ascetics reply, re replied, it is dukkha, suffering. He then asked further, is what is dukkha fit to be called me or mine or myself? To which they responded, no, no hetang bante, it is not. Their minds from this discourse gathered and they all achieved arahantship or full awakening. Such is the power and potency of this recollection. We may balk at drawing a comparison between ourselves and this ascetics, thinking that we don't have the spiritual strength that they do. We don't have the paramita that they do. But whatever level of barami, paramita we have is enough. If we believe we have little, then all the more reason to put forth effort in our practice to cultivate more. If we do this, we may slowly build it until we have enough to achieve liberation. Either way, our duty is to walk this path with diligence and effort. To walk this path requires the simple steps of the Eightfold Noble Path. We cultivate ethical conduct, sila. We work to give. We practice samadhi and formal meditation every day to bring the mind to calms.
to calm. We practice diligently, whether we feel lazy or energetic. We put forth effort without ceasing. When we wish to succeed at some subject in the world, we study books and based on that effort, we achieve distinction, gaining a bachelor's degree, a master's or a doctorate. And the study of the Dhamma is the same. When we put forth effort, achieve a quiet mind with lucid calm, samadhi, then we can turn our attention to research, in a sense, of the Dhamma, namely looking and working to understand how all conditioned phenomena are inconstant and unworthy of attachment. All the mental impressions we receive, all the sensory impressions we see, receive, we then can watch, usher into liking and disliking, preference and pushing away. And yet we don't attach or follow such preferences. We simply know them because we've seen clearly that all the sankara will pass and all are inconstant and changeable. So we do not become lost in the various impressions that the world brings to us. But first, we need to practice, cultivate the basics. We need to recollect the three gems of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha regularly to brighten the mind. We must cultivate the four Brahma-viharas or uh, boundless abidings of loving kindness, compassion, gladness, and equanimity. And once we've brightened and strengthened the mind in these ways, then when we turn our mind to contemplate these truths, we may see clearly, understand Dhamma, and achieve awakening.